Hello, church, if you would open to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, we will look at this passage one more time that we've studied the last two weeks, verses 1 through 11. This is the Word of God. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged Him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on His head and arrayed Him in a purple robe. They came up to Him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck Him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing Him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in Him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man! When the chief priests and the officers saw Him, they cried out, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Pilate said to them, Take Him yourselves and crucify Him, for I find no guilt in Him. The Jews answered Him, We have a law, and according to the law, He ought to die because He has made Himself the Son of God. And Pilate heard this statement. He was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who has delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And so, Father, as we study this very brief moment in human history, once again, we ask for eyes that see, for ears that hear, for lives that are affected and are changed because Your Word is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, piercing deep to our souls. Do that, Lord, for Your namesake today. Lord, That we, as we think on these things that happened to You when You were on this earth, that we would not only believe them, but we would be changed by them and we would leave here living lives worthy of this calling that You've given us as we follow Your path to glory. And so, Father, we ask You to come and bless the preaching of Your Word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to focus just on one very uh, simple yet profound statement pulled out of the mouth of this pagan king, repeated three times. I'm talking about this judicial announcement. I find no guilt in him. Now, that is the central reoccurring phrase in Jesus' uh, six trials. We should remember that uh, Jesus endured six trials on Friday before his crucifixion, uh, three of those were Jewish trials, illegal trials that they set up, and, and then they passed him over to the Romans, and Jesus 
Uh, and they did that because they didn't want uh, a revolt by the Jews because many of the Jews believed that Jesus was innocent. And so they thought it would be better that Rome put him to death. And so as Jesus is handed over to these Roman officials, Pilate, in chapter 18, verse 39, this first trial before Pilate, uh, after Pilate has examined Christ to see if there's grounds for crucifying or killing him or punishing him in some way, he says, I find no guilt in him. And then he hands them over to Herod. And Herod examines him and says, this is an innocent man. I find no fault in him. And he sends him back to Pilate for this third and final Roman trial, the sixth trial that Jesus has gone through, to Pilate saying now, uh, bringing Jesus back before the Jews and saying, I find no guilt in him, verse 4. And then again in verse 6, I find no guilt in him. So these are legal and judicial pronouncements of innocence uh, from a Roman government leader about Jesus before his crucifixion. And I, I bring these up first because there is a sense in which we need to also examine Christ and make a judgment on him. Now, I don't mean that in some sort of disrespectful way. I don't mean that in some sort of relativistic way where, you know, um, if I judge him to be Lord, he's Lord. And if I don't judge him to be Lord, he's not Lord. I don't mean it like that. He is Lord. Uh, we will stand before this Christ, whether we believe it or not, and we will know He's Lord. And what I'm saying is before that day of reckoning, we must determine who this Christ is. We, we must have examined Christ enough to figure this out. Here's the question you need to ask yourself. Is there guilt in Him? Is there guilt in Him? Because if there is, Christianity falls apart. Uh, it, there is no Christianity apart from Christ's sinlessness, which means there's no gospel apart from Christ's sinlessness. And uh, this is crucial, and Jesus knew it in John 8. Uh, if you remember, uh, they're trying to back him in the corner, these Jewish leaders, and Jesus turns to them and says, which one of you convicts me of sin? In other words, find some dirt on me. What are your actual accusations? Do you have any legitimate grounds for accusation? Uh, to, to modernize it, uh, do a background check. Search my internet activity. See if you find any incriminating evidence on me. And they couldn't accept verse 7 in our passage, they say, we have a law, and according to that law, he, he deserves to die because he made himself, key phrase, made himself the Son of God. He didn't make himself the Son of God, of course, because he is the Son of God eternally. And notice what they don't accuse him of. Breaking any law. 613 Old Testament laws he could have broken. They could have accused him of breaking. These are experts in the law, and they lay no violation of any of these laws before him. Not even one. I mean, these people are scrutinizing his every move. He's got this public ministry. No word, no action that they put before him at this point to try to say, look, he's guilty. He's broken this law or this law or this law. 
the experts of the law had nothing on him except he claims to be, he made himself the Son of God. And again, he didn't make himself the Son of God. He is the Son of God. And so the point is that Roman law has found no guilt in him. Jewish law is only able to accuse him of making himself the Son of God. And we have here a man legally named Jesus of Nazareth with no incriminating evidence, no legitimate grounds for accusation, who was on trial about to die. And this causes many liberal scholars and uh, secular opponents to the faith to say, why wouldn't he defend himself? If he's so innocent, if this is an unjust trial, why didn't Jesus say anything? Why didn't he defend himself? Which only shows they don't understand the gospel. Jesus isn't standing on trial for his own guilt. Not ultimately, but for ours. That's why he's there. And I want to look at this uh, in three layers. We'll call them three, three layers of meaning uh, to Christ's sinlessness, to the sinless perfection of Christ. Uh, the first layer, so we're just looking at that phrase, I find no guilt in him, and there's three layers of meaning in that. Here's the first one. It is a general truth. It is a general truth. What Pilate is saying is factually true and theologically and biblically true. So let me explain what I mean by that. Um, if we remember from last week, we, we talked about Pilate uh, and these soldiers mocking him. Fake crown, fake robe, fake bowing. All of these things are mockery. All of these things are, are they're trying to mimic something and not really worship him, not really crown him king, not really, but what are they actually doing? They're crowning him king. They're bowing to him. They're calling him king of the Jews. And so behind their mockery, God is exalting Christ, but he's exalting him in his humiliation before he exalts him in his glory post-resurrection. Uh, he is being exalted. In other words, when they bow down and mock him and say, oh, look at the king, and they bow down and mock him, they are actually bowing down to the one that one day they will bow, every knee will bow before. And God's setting it up like this. And he's saying, when, when Pilate says, behold the man, he meant that in a, very, uh, a way to mock the Jews. But what is... God saying behind Pilate's words, he's saying, behold the idyllic man, the prototypical man, the second Adam, the man who would live like no man. And so the proverb 16.1 is actually being fulfilled in all of this. The plans of the heart belong to man. That is, Pilate meant to mock him, but the answer of the tongue comes from the Lord. God behind his mockery had a different agenda with these actual words that Pilate is saying. And, and I'm confident this is exactly what's happening because we have John chapter 11. Let me remind us of John chapter 11. Our author John is very explicit in how he mentions the irony. In John 11 uh, verse 48, if you remember back, it says, 
these, the Jews are trying to plot to kill Jesus at this point, and they said, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So this is the, the fear of the, the Jews at this point. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people than the whole nation should perish. And then listen to how John notes this. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So John points out Caiaphas's words are not Caiaphas's words ultimately. They're God's prophetic words out of the high priest's mouth that Jesus would die a substitutionary death on behalf of his people. That's what John says about Caiaphas's words. And so the point I'm making is that's the same thing happening with Pilate. What Pilate means for evil, what Pilate means for mockery, behind that, God is saying something very true. God is pronouncing, rather, a general truth about who Christ is that's factually true and theologically and biblically true. So in other words, Pilate's preaching a little sermon. It's a a little sermon, but it's a sermon. Uh, He's putting Christ before the Jewish people up on his upper chamber saying, Behold the man, crowned, robed as royalty, the king of the Jews. Remember the placard that's going to be put up on the cross? That in three languages it will say, Jesus, King of the Jews. And remember what happens when the the Jewish people find out about this little placard that's going to be over the cross? What do they say? They say this. No, don't write that. He, that He is the King of the Jews, write this man said He was the King of the Jews. And then what does Pilate say? What's written is written. And what I'm saying is God is behind all of this to make a general truth known to all people. This is the King of the Jews. This is the one you will bow before. This is the one whose name is to be hailed above all names. God is providentially working behind their mockery to proclaim a truth for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see. Can you hear it? Do you see it? Behold the man. See his humiliation. See how he suffered for sins that he didn't commit. See how he was treated worse than a criminal. How the prophets were right when Isaiah 53 says he was numbered with the transgressors even though he had no transgressions. One commentator said, there is a sevenfold declaration of Christ's innocence in the events surrounding the cross. Seven declarations of innocence. And remember, seven's an important number in the Bible. Perfection, it means. Completion. We see Judas, after he handed and betrayed Jesus over, he says, I have sinned betraying innocent blood. Herod says, I can find nothing worthy of death 
Pilate's wife have nothing to do with this just man. The dying criminal next to Christ on the cross says, we are receiving a just punishment, but this man has done nothing wrong. The Roman centurion after his crucifixion said, surely this is a righteous man. And all of those others that saw said, surely this was the Son of God. And Pilate himself saying, I find no guilt in him. Now listen, here's what's so important about all of those seven declarations of innocence. Not one of them comes from the mouth of a Christian. Not one. Which tells us this is a general truth. That anybody who really looks at Christ should be able to say and affirm. Uh, Maybe we should ask it like this. Who actually questions whether Jesus was sinless? Because there's about 50 passages that clearly, explicitly say that he was. Even the cults, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness believe that Jesus was sinless. Catholics affirm Jesus was sinless. Now they add extra works to his sinless sacrifice, which corrupts it, but they still say he was sinless. Islam acknowledges that Jesus was sinless. I was listening to an Islamic apologist the other day, and, um, and he said no, uh, no Muslim who reads the Quran would ever deny the sinlessness of Jesus. He was a sinless prophet. Now, their error, obviously, is he was just a prophet, but they do say he was sinless because the Quran teaches that, the Bible teaches that, and they say, how could you deny that? There's no evidence of any sin that he ever committed. And and, and to top it off, guys, the devil believes Jesus is sinless. The demons believe Jesus is sinless. In Mark chapter 1, when Jesus is casting out demons, one of them says, what would you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come here to destroy us? I know that you are the Holy One of God. The demons acknowledging and, and, and by the way, that's the same uh, Greek phrase that Peter says in his great confession of Christ when he says, where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. You are the Holy One of God. Same Greek phrase as the demon said. So the demon's confessing a, a right Christology. Peter's confessing a right Christology. What does this show? You can be a non-Christian and make right affirmations about the Christology of Jesus, that He is sinless and not be saved. But it's just common knowledge, like the sun is hot. Kind of hard to deny that. Can't deny the sinlessness of Christ either. It's a general truth that everyone who's looked at Jesus' life should affirm. So Pilate, Judas, Catholics, Mormons, Muslims, demons, all affirm the sinlessness of Christ. So, let's press beyond that to a Christian affirmation of the sinlessness of Christ. So, the second layer, when we look at those words, I find no guilt in Him, it's not only a general truth, but also a foundation for salvation. Meaning, there's no salvation apart from Christ's sinless life. 
That's what Christians believe. So here, here's maybe a better way to say this. Um, we can say there's no salvation except in Christ's sinless life because we're not just focused on his sinless life, but also his perfect life of obedience. Those aren't the exact same thing. They're two sides of the same coin, but there is difference there. Uh, let, me, let me maybe begin to unpack this like this. If Jesus would have parachuted down out of heaven, right to the Roman cross, and died for sin, He would not have died for sin. It would not have saved anyone. If Jesus would have died as a baby, if Jesus would have died at 15 or 29 years old, His death would not have saved us from sin. I think this could be argued from many places. I'll put one passage before us. Galatians 4.4 4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So that, important phrase, because it points back to everything he just said, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So we know we can be adopted, become Christians, become part of the family of God because of these other four things he just listed. What were those things? The fullness of time. There is a certain timing. Sin had to reach a certain limit. Everything had to be set up for then second God to send forth his son and look, if God Himself has to come down and fix the sin problem, that's a problem. But this Son of God was not just a Son of God. He was born of a woman. So Joseph wasn't the biological father. Jesus was born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit. And he was born under the law, it says, to redeem those who are under the law. So our problem isn't just that we're sinners in some vague way. The problem is we are lawbreakers. We are violators of God's law. That's not the same as just saying sin in some kind of vague way. I'm, a, I'm not a good person or I've done some bad things. We are under the law of God and therefore condemned by this righteous standard of God's law and Christ had to come down and fulfill that righteous standard. That's not some vague thing. He, every jot and tittle, it says in, in the KJV, right? Every little part of what it meant to be righteous, He had to fulfill. And Joel Beakey's helpful here. He says Christ had to perform real obedience. He couldn't cheat relying on His divinity. He obeyed as a human by the power of the Holy Spirit. And on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, Jesus is abundantly clear, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. All of it. And none of this is accidental. This law keeping, everything is purposeful and intentional. He is on a mission, not just to die for sin, but to live according to the law. Part of the mission. This is why theologians make a really important distinction that we should all get this and remember this if we can between what's called Christ's active obedience and Christ's passive obedience. Active obedience and passive obedience. And that word passive, um, I assure you, 
Whatever we may think that Christ did that was passive was more active and intentional than anything you've ever done. Don't misunderstand the word passive. His passive obedience was His death on the cross. His active obedience is His life of law-keeping righteousness. And both are needed for our salvation. And I would say equally. The law giver had to become a law keeper. The author of the law had to assume the position of a human, Jewish human, to fulfill the Jewish law. He was responsible and accountable to obey the law. And I use those words intentionally because our culture hates responsibility, hates accountability, hates the word law. Jesus happily shouldered the responsibility accountable for the law of God. Happily delighting in it. Because the law is good. Especially if you can obey it. And he could. And he did. Romans 5.19 is very helpful. It says, By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. It's Adam. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So what obedience? Passive obedience. Death on the cross. Active obedience. Life fulfilling the law of God. In other words, God is no hypocrite. He's not giving us some standard of righteousness that He Himself isn't willing to come down and subject Himself to and then perfectly fulfill. That's why 1 John 3.5 says, He appeared to take away sin, and in Him there is no sin. 1 Peter 2.22, He committed no sin, nor was there deceit in His mouth, When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. John 5, Jesus said, The works the Father has given me to accomplish, I am doing. They bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. In private prayer in John 17, Jesus says, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. We often talk about wanting to live lives to God's glory. When Jesus said He was living for God's glory, He rooted that in, I've done the work. The actual commands that you gave, that gives you real glory, Father. John 19, on the cross, His dying words, He says what? It is finished. Meaning, many things we'll get into in the next few weeks, but... Law-keeping righteousness. Here's maybe a a helpful way to to think through this. In our gospel catechisms, if you've been to our city groups, um, every city group does these slightly different with our gospel catechism. I mentioned for our group, what is sin? Sin is falling short of the glory of God. Uh, How do we fall short of God's glory? Sins of omission, everyone says. What are those? That's not doing what God commanded. Omitting our responsibility to obey God. He says, love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We don't love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Sin of omission. Sin of commission is another way we sin against God. That's breaking 
His laws. Transgressing His laws. I've recently added a third category. Not for what we've done wrong or haven't done right, but we're just wrong because of who we are. That's called original sin. We're born into Adam. As it says in Romans 5, by one man's disobedience, many became what? Sinners. That's an Adam. That's what we're... Two sinful parents make a baby. That baby is born into Adam and inherits a sinful nature. All these soldiers that are mocking Christ, they're committing sins of commission, mocking and beating the Son of God. They're committing sins of omission. Christ Himself is standing before them and they're not worshiping Christ. But then they were guilty before any of that, the moment they were born. But then juxtapose that with Christ Himself. He's committed no sins of commission. He's committed no sins of omission. And He wasn't born into a sinful nature. He wasn't born into Adam. He's called the second Adam for a reason. He wasn't born with a sinful nature like us. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin. And all of this is essential to Him resisting temptation. Uh, We could talk about this one for a long time, but it's worth at least putting it before us. Um, In James, it says that each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Alright, so you get tempted later this week, that's what happened. You're like, why am I getting tempted? Well, uh, the enemy and your own flesh is being lured and enticed by your own desire. Well, how did Christ get tempted? He had no desire to be latched on to. Temptations had no foothold to grab a hold of because he had no sinful desires. That's why some have said, was Jesus really even tempted? But he was. Because Hebrews 2.18 says he himself suffered when tempted. That's what temptation feels like if you're trying to resist it. It feels like suffering. And He is able, therefore, to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 4.15 says this qualifies Him to sympathize with our weaknesses because He was tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. Central phrase. Uh, At the Council of Chalcedon, many of you know, in uh, 451 A.D., this council... Uh, came together to talk about the person of Christ. Who is Jesus? What does the Bible say about the person of Jesus Christ? And one of the things that they established and recognized that the Bible is clear on is that Jesus has two natures. He's fully human and He's fully God. And everyone goes, yes, the Bible is abundantly clear on that. And if that's true, then something else is true. He also has two wills. A divine will and a human will. And we go, could He sin by that divine will? Was it possible for Jesus to sin by His divine will? And everybody would agree, no, God can't sin. What about with His human will? Could He sin because of His human will? And there's some debate on that, but I would stand and say uh, He could not sin by His human will. 
and did not sin by his human will. Now, whether he could or he couldn't, guess what? He didn't. And that's what we hold on to. So when we see that phrase, I find no guilt in him, we need to really, really, really emphasize those two words, no guilt. No guilt. Uh, Dr. John Gresham Machen, professor at the old Princeton, back in the glory days of Princeton, as they say, um, before liberalism came in, and he was actually very instrumental in holding that back and fighting those battles for many, many years. And on his deathbed, he wrote a telegram to a friend, fellow professor, John Murray, uh, where he said this, I am so thankful for the act of obedience of Christ. Apart from it, I have no hope. Now, this is a man who devoted his life to Christ. Right? Maybe further along in sanctification than anyone here. I don't know. But certainly ahead of most of us. And he's saying, I have no hope of heaven apart from not my own righteousness, but the righteousness of another, Jesus is Christ's active obedience. That's my hope of heaven when I die in a few days and I'm laying in this hospital bed. Sometimes people say, are we saved by works? I love to answer, there's no other way to be saved but by works. Just not your own. Christ's. We are all saved by Christ's works or we're not saved. And that's why it's so tragic that many Christians reduce Jesus' life down to just a good example to follow. He's the best guy that ever lived. Let's try to just, if we want to be good people, let's try to follow in His example. No! His life is your life. It's not just your example. That is your life. Or you have no life. So Jesus not only died in our place, He lived in our place. He not, we don't just need Jesus to die for us, we need Him to live for us. I mean, Christ did not say this, I do what is pleasing to the Father. He did not say that. He said this, far more audacious. I only do what is pleasing to the Father. That's a claim to perfection. We need that type of righteousness somehow to be given to us. That's our only hope. When Jesus says things like this in Matthew 5.20, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he ends that chapter saying, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You hear a lot of Christians say, well, God doesn't expect us to be perfect. Well, actually, he does. That's the only way you get into heaven is perfection. I mean, one-third of the angels fell out of heaven. For what? A life of rebellion? No, one rebellion. How many sins removed Adam from Eden? One. God does require perfection. The question is, how do you get that perfection? How does that righteous, perfect standard become yours so that you can get to heaven? We don't just need forgiveness of sins, guys. 
We need forgiveness of sins and an imputed righteousness of Christ. That's our entrance into heaven. The question is, how do I become perfectly righteous? You must be constantly, every second of every day, your whole life, no sin ever, only good always. Which means loving God with all your heart, not part of your heart, all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, loving your neighbor as yourself all the time, from the moment you're you're born until the day you die. Can you perform that standard of righteousness and then stand before God and make your way in? You cannot. You dare not. Thankfully, Jesus came down to live for us. You need, as Luther said, an alien righteousness. It is a righteousness from above. A righteousness that is not yours. One you didn't earn and one you don't deserve. Which leads to the third layer of meaning. I find no guilt in Him is not only a general truth, it's not only a, a foundation for salvation, it's a heavenly declaration. Our only hope to get into heaven is to hear those words from God's judgment seat when we stand before Him innocent, cleared, pure, righteous from God's mouth, from the judge's mouth on your actual life. Look, we can talk about freedom all we want. People can talk about freedom. There's no freedom unless you have that declaration over your life. Um, We are not, I shouldn't have to say this, but we're we're not the Son of God. We talk about being sons of God. We're not the, there is only one eternal Son of God. But plural, there are sons of God. And there really is a sense in which God should be able to look at His sons and say, like He said to His Son, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. There is a sense in which God must be able to look at you and see some sort of righteousness that He is pleased by. Is there any hope of that? I mean, what would that do to us if we really believed these things? I, I, was, uh, I, I googled on YouTube this week, um, I find no guilt in Him, just to see what would pop up. That's always fun to do, right? Um, you never know what type of videos will pop up when you search something on, on YouTube. So I search, I find no guilt in him. And all these famous trials of different uh, supposed criminals came up. Cor- their courtroom hearings and the judge's pronouncement upon them. Once new uh, evidence was put forward and the judge said, Innocent, I clear you of all charges. You may go free, sir. And these people melted. I mean, they couldn't hold their bodies up. The, the type of relief that that brought from guilt, from fear, from all of the things that they were dreading, they couldn't hold themselves up. Some of them couldn't stop themselves from just overwhelming emotion of joy and cele- celebration and tears. Please 
understand, guys, God's heavenly courtroom, you're not going to stand before the judge, nor will I, and him just say, you know what? I'm merciful, so you can go. I'm a forgiving person, so you can go. I, I just, I love the world, so you can go. He, he's not going to take plea deals. The judge accepts Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice in the place of guilty criminals. That's what he accepts to clear our name. 1 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake, He made Him to be sin. Who knows sin? That's Jesus. He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Steve Lawson expounds on that and says this, this righteousness with which you and I are clothed is not a righteousness that God just creates ex nihilo, out of nothing, out of thin air. It is the very practical righteousness that was achieved by Christ as He lived under the law. It was the, that righteousness that He secured that is deposited to our account, that is imputed to us in the act of justification by faith. So when we believe who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us, that righteousness is imputed. That's the language of Romans 4. If we had time to go there and look at that, it uses that word imputed. Some translations say accredited to our account. His righteousness inserts, clothes us so that judicially, legally, God can declare us innocent and does declare us innocent. Even before we stand before Him. We can have that confidence now that our name has been cleared. All of this is fulfilling a prophecy from 700 years ago. Many prophecies, but Isaiah 53.9 says, They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, though he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Out of the anguish of his soul he, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, the sinless one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. The imputed righteousness of Christ prophesied 700 years before Jesus was even born. First Peter 3.18 Christ suffered once for sin. The righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. doesn't have to suffer again. He suffered once on the cross for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might, and here's the key phrase, bring us to God. The goal of being called innocent and having your guilt removed isn't that you get to go to heaven or you get the peace of mind of knowing you're going to go to heaven one day. The great goal of having all your guilt and sin removed is that you get to be with God. Which is what makes heaven, heaven. As we prepare to go to the table, uh, we're going to have a song play over us to renew our minds this morning.
And I want to just frame it like this as we uh, prepare to come and take these elements. That the ultimate being brought to God is in the New Jerusalem, what we often call the marriage supper of the Lamb. With the bride, the, the church, adorned in white to show her purity and to show her perfection. That's what this is supposed to point to. The purity of the church. The sinlessness and perfect righteousness of the church. When you put Matthew 22 and Revelation 3 together, we see this feast will only be attended by those who have been clothed in white garments. They are the ones worthy to come to the table of the Lord. That's Christ's righteousness given to us, clothing us, making us acceptable to enter that marriage feast of the Lamb, that heavenly new Jerusalem. It's a beautiful thing. This table is a preparatory meal for that. That's why this table is only for those who have trusted Christ, have received His righteousness by faith, who have been baptized into that name, and are with His bride, awaiting all of these things. So if that is you, uh, I want you to please come and join us today. Uh, if you are new and these things do not apply, you can have in your bulletin, there's some prayers you could pray uh, to make this a meaningful time uh, for you. Let's prepare our hearts, church, and let's come to the table rejoicing in this great hope of the Gospel. Father, oh Lord, what a refreshing reminder that because there was no guilt in You and You took Your body, Your blood and became the spotless Lamb of God who could take away the sins of the world. We put all our confidence in Your purity and in Your righteousness and none in our own. And Lord, as we come to the table, we pray, Father, that You would cause our hearts to just rest in that finished work, to rejoice in that finished work. Lord, that You would renew us and strengthen us so that we could leave here today, go out strengthened by the Gospel, empowered to preach it to others. Lord, would You do these things as we come to the table? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.